and welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. In this episode, I am delighted to talk to Gad Saad, PhD. He's from Montreal in Canada. He's a popular blogger for Psychology Today, is a professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University. He holds the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption and is the author of The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, plus numerous scientific papers. His latest book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, is out in October, and as we discuss, it promises to deliver solutions to the issues we see everywhere in the West today. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat with a fellow honey badger, and I hope you do too. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, And if you do so desire, please leave a review. I'm told it makes some sort of difference to how people find me and how many can locate this podcast. Uh, Please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm going to say it again, your your book, The Parasitic Mind, um, October, where where on earth are we going to be by then? (laughs) <laughs> I think it'll be over by then. We'll be in the, uh, we'll be going hurtling down the the abyss of infinite lunacy. <laughs> so, for people who don't know you, um, why do you know so much about this? Where where do you come from? Where are you coming from with all this? Uh, I don't know, crazy fact stuff. <laughs> so, I guess it comes from two separate places. Number one, I grew up in Lebanon. Uh, as, as I was born in Lebanon and grew up there until the age of 11, where we had to leave, we're Lebanese Jews. And so we had to leave Lebanon, uh, you know, in very dire circumstances. Otherwise, our heads would have been detached from the rest of our bodies. And so I learned very early in life to have a great disdain for identity politics, for tribalism. And so there's certainly a, a personal history that makes me you know, look at some of these issues with great disdain. But then, of course, there's a second trajectory that has led me to where I am today. And that is that I've been a professor for 26 years now. And so I am really in the ecosystem where all of these bad ideas originate from. Uh, I, you know, it, it really, it truly does take intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas possible. <laughs> and so what really my book is about, uh, and, and I'm also someone who, uh, as, as part of my training and subsequent scientific research, studied decision-making. How do people process information? How do they arrive at conclusions? And so because of all of this unique set of trajectories and training and so on, uh, I just couldn't believe that the, the environments that we were increasingly facing. And I also, I guess, I'm endowed maybe for better or worse with the type of personality that doesn't really allow me to stay quiet. I, I feel physically ill at uh, you know the constant attacks on truth, the constant departures from reason. And so I started weighing in early enough in my career and it has just kept increasing and increasing so that now I'm kind of, you know, the, the, one of the main voices out there that keeps warning people that it's only gonna get worse unless people you know, get involved. Yes, you are. Uh, I join you on the, I, I... If I'm not allowed to say it, that's all I want to talk about. <laughs> so you've always been sort of, you've, you've had that combative spirit in you always? 
Yeah, always, even as a kid. I mean, I didn't grow up in any conflict, um, but I, you know, it, it's just, I can't tolerate it. I can't bear it. I can't, I can't bear falsehoods. It just annoys me far too much. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the other things, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me, but you know, isn't it, wouldn't you lead a calmer life professor if you just went about your scientific work? And, and then I always tell people that, you know, I have a very exacting standard of personal conduct such that if at the end of the night I, I lay my, my head on the pillow, I need to feel that I've done all that I can, however big or however small, to try to weigh in using my limited sphere of influence my limited sphere of influence. And if I've done that, then I can go to sleep feeling as though I'm not a fraud. If I don't do that, then I feel that I could have done more, right? And even if I do all that I do, I still question that I should have done more. So I think it's that really in, in, internal rage that causes me to kind of go on because I really think that I know what happens to societies when they uh, you know, crash into tribalism. Yeah. I try to escape that and I don't want it to come back here. And do you think, I mean, in your book, The Parasitic Mind, uh, you talk about pretty much what's going on everywhere in the West. So where does that book come from? Uh, clearly, I can see what inspired you, <laughs> everything around you. <laughs> but where, what, does it offer solutions or are you just telling us what, what is happening? No, it, actually, it's, it's a great question that you ask about the solutions because one of the first things that I try to do in, in speaking to, to my publisher and so on is the idea that I can't just diagnose the problem. It's kind of like you go to see your physician and he or she tells you, here's what you have, but sorry, I've got no solution for you. I've got no trajectory for you to take. And so I try to be as mindful as I can to offer, so first to diagnose the problem, but then to offer solutions. And so if you want, the trajectory of the book works as follows. I begin by explaining very much the way an epidemiologist would, where does the, the, the set of viruses, where do they originate from? And they come from the university ecosystem. And so examples of such pathogens would be postmodernism. So postmodernism, if you like, is the granddaddy of idea pathogens because it literally rejects that there is such a thing as truth, right? Everything is subjective truth. So how can I wake up in the morning and try to even pretend to try to be a scientist if there is no objective truth out there, right? So it's a very nihilistic, what I call intellectual terrorism. So there is no truth, there is only my truth, right? So postmodernism would be an example of an idea pathogen. Uh, the rejection of biology in explaining human behavior, which I call biophobia, would be another such uh, pathogen. Radical feminism, which rejects the notion that there are evolved sex differences between the two sexes, is another such pathogen. Cultural relativism, the idea that who are you to judge if we cut off the clitorises of little girls in some other foreign land, is another pathogen. So, you take each of these pathogens, individually they're already disastrous. You put them together in a cocktail of bullshit, you end up with a complete rejection of reality, a rejection of common sense. And so I, I, I trace this whole story, and then in chapters seven and eight, the two last chapters of the book, I then offer uh, hopefully valuable solutions. Are those solutions sort of to the universities? Are they to the individual? Like. I know lots of my friends feel that they are being mass gaslit on what's happening in the trans 
movement being told that women aren't a biological reality or when it comes to sort of some of the protests that are happening now that don't feel tangibly true to what they're protesting about. Um, so do, can you offer the individual an escape from that thinking? Yes, so they are. So in chapter seven, what I do, and here bear with me because it's going to get a tiny bit technical. Okay. Uh, and it's not, I'm not trying to be professorial or verbose, but I really have to kind of give the, the setting. So in chapter seven, I talk about how to seek truth. And here I use what I call uh, nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So if you think back of Charles Darwin, uh, when he was trying to establish the veracity of his theory of evolution, it took him many, many years and data from many, many different disciplines, different disciplines, different time periods. Uh, so from geology and uh, paleontology and animal husbandry and fossil remains and so on. So it wasn't a singular line of evidence that convinced the world that his theories were right, but rather he built a tsunami of evidence that made it very difficult, even for his most dogged uh, detractors to try to counter his points. And so in, in chapter seven, I explain how to do that in a very formal way. If I want to prove to you that toy preferences are actually biologically based and not social construction, what would I have to do to convince the most dogged, uh, you know, detractor of that, of, of my position? And, and so it, it is literally looking at data from different cultures, different disciplines, different time periods. And if every single data source points to the same incontrovertible final conclusion, then it becomes very, very difficult for you to huff and puff in full indignation. So that's chapter seven. And then in chapter eight, what I do is I literally try to give people what to me seem like obvious prescriptions, but regrettably to most it's not. So for example, I talk about channel your inner honey badger. So a honey badger, do you know what a honey badger looks like? I do, but go on. Yeah, so a honey badger is a animal that's you know probably the size of a you know medium-sized dog, but that is astoundingly ferocious, right? So mm -hmm. that it can stand up to six lions, that each lion is you know twenty-five times its size, and the lions just because of the way the honey badger is standing its ground, they'll just back down. And so I think one of the things that we end up doing is because of the e-mob that we see today, they're, they're always coming after you, you just have to go boo and everybody then capitulates, right? Whereas if you truly have this ethos of, look, I've got a set of principles and I'm truly confident about my principles, then no, because, because oftentimes people ask me, well, how do you do it? How, how do you even exist in academia? How do you get away with mm -hmm. speaking? What, well, because I truly believe that whatever I'm saying is always rooted in a mountain of evidence. Plus, I am a honey badger. So if you come after me, you better take me out because if not, I'm gonna take you out and everybody who, whom you've ever spoken to. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So it's yeah. part maybe my Middle Eastern background, part it's my unique set of genetic components that make me who I am. But for whatever reason, I come to the battle of ideas prepared. And so I talk about that. I, another one I give is don't diffuse the responsibility onto others, right? So it's, it's very easy for everyone to say, well, don't worry, God Saad is speaking on our behalf. But God Saad is one small voice. But if all of, but I receive a th thousands of emails 
from professors saying, you're my hero, Shh, please don't share my name, right? Well, please don't share my name is precisely why we are where we are, right? You should mm -hmm. not feel ashamed that you are supporting someone who defends the right of women and defends the right of trans people in the Middle East. I thought that's the right side of the issue to be on. But no, sh I, can't sh I can't be shown to be supporting you, professor. So, so I kind of give very practical solutions or, or prescriptions so that people can feel emboldened to speak out. But the tactics of the mob, the silencing tactics, the shaming language that they use, and the fact that, like, I've, I don't know if you know anything about me, but I did this billboard. And it got removed in the UK for hate speech. I, I just, in preparation, when you, when you, when your assistant wrote to invite me, I, I sorry, but I didn't know who you were, so I went and checked, okay. and I, I kind of got a feel for what you fight for. I got it. Okay, so I've also been interviewed under caution twice by the British for police for saying this sort of thing, and um, people sort of say to me uh, about standing up, about speaking up, and I just. I just say you should do it, but I don't work. But these people, I mean, I've been targeted. My husband's been targeted. My children have been targeted. There have been websites created to say where we live, where my kids go to school. Um, it's been massive. But for lots of people, they work in education or they work in places with HR departments. And there is a very real risk that they will lose their jobs. Look, I understand. Uh, I get that you shouldn't be unnecessarily a martyr. But the best rebuttal that I can offer to this va valid concern that you raise is when the young, uh, dare I say men, because they were largely men, when the young men uh, landed at Normandy and knew that, you know, 90% of them or 95% of them were going to be mowed down like little ants, they didn't ask to be guaranteed safe passage before they did it. In other words, I'm not trying to minimize the fact that there are very real consequences, but the reality is you cannot go to a war, whether it be a physical, literal war, or in this case, the war for the soul of our civilization, whilst being assured that there won't be any consequences that befall, befall you. Now, in my case, by the way, many people will write to me and say, well, but professor, seriously, you're a tenured professor with a huge platform, so you're safe. No, I'm not safe. Uh, and I've had huge professional uh, uh, consequences that have befallen me, uh, all sorts of awards and all sorts of promotions and pr professorships at other universities that I know for a fact were lost because I am outspoken. I get a million death threats. I mean, I've, I've, I've always been a very mellow guy, whereas now when I go out into the street, I, I feel as though I, I have at times anxiety. Number one, because a lot of people will come up to me and obviously recognize me. And I don't know whether the next one who comes up to me won't be a fan. Uh, so there are many, many consequences that one takes. And so the idea that, oh, but it's not courageous of you, professor, because you're tenured, is actually an insult. Because instead of you saying, thank you for taking the battle on my behalf, you're denigrating what I'm doing for your children. So the reality is, yes, of course, everybody wants to be safe. Everybody has a job to lose. But if we all stand up together in unison, the problem will go away as quickly as you can say, boo. But if we don't, then slowly they will eat us. Mm. I think people who don't um, really face what is the potential consequence of not speaking up, I think they live in somewhat luxury because some of us, I mean, I can't sleep at night if I don't do enough. I, I think of the girls throughout the uh, United States having their breasts removed. 
you know, that's enough to make me not feel so threatened. But um, yeah, I think that, I think people don't see the consequence. I think we've been far too cushy for far too long. Exactly. Well, and I think going back to your original question, where you said, you know, where do you come from, and so on. Look, I, I for for thirty years. So I came to Canada in nineteen seventy-five. I was eleven years old, and for the next, you know, twenty-five years or so, I thought that, wow, this is the greatest place ever. And then bit by bit, I see us sinking. Now I'm not saying that tomorrow we're going to be Beirut, Lebanon of nineteen seventy-five. But give it 50 years, give it 100 years, have a long view of history. Don't look at tomorrow. I'm not suggesting that tomorrow morning Western civilization will fall. But we know for a fact that great civilizations usually implode from within. It's not the boogeyman from outside that comes and invades me. It's that we become decadent. And so you could see it throughout history. So what's happening right now in the West, to go back to my book, is there's a set of incredibly virulent idea pathogens that are removing the bedrock of reason and enlightenment that has led to the great societies that we have, that leads millions of people to want to come to the West, such as myself. I don't want the West to become Beirut, Lebanon in 1975. It will become that. I mean, we already start seeing little signatures of that right now, right? I mean, in Seattle, they have a seven block radius of no-go zone. Have you, have you heard about this? No. The, the Antifa types or whatever they are, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the really woke folks have blocked an area of seven blocks in Seattle where, you know, and there's actually a police precinct in that area. They've abandoned their post. Well, we know you're British. We know that Chamberlain's appeasement strategy did not work too well against Hitler, right? So always be kind, always be diplomatic until you don't have to be, right? And, and again, have some testicular fortitude. I hope people are not going to write you because I said testicular, but have some <laughs> testicular fortitude. Grow a pair. Fight mm. for your beliefs, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so with your book then, what are the pathogens that you, uh, what are the path pathogens that you recognize and that you talk about? Yeah, so, so I, I discussed a few already. So postmodernism, radical feminism, cultural relativism, biophobia, identity politics, the ethos of equality of outcomes. So, uh, right, we, right uh, how come there isn't an equal number of this group or why isn't there transgender this, right? Well, we don't ask that question when we look at the all-time leading NFL rushers, 24 out of 25 of whom are black. Why don't we ask about diversity, inclusion, and equity? By the way, that acronym, I call it the die religion, right? For D, right? Well, die will lead to the death of meritocracy. So, some, some, so an area of human import like academia should be strictly judged based on the merit of people. And yet mm -hmm. in, a, in just a very few short years, it's all about, do you have the right characteristics? Are you a woman or are you a transgender woman or are you an indigenous transgender woman or are you an indigenous person of color or are you, right? I mean, that's grotesque. Now, nobody is suggesting, uh, when it comes to fighting for injustice, I'm about as liberal as they come, right? But in a true liberal sense, not in the faux fascist liberal sense that the word has now been asserted by a whole bunch of cretins, right? I believe in, the, in judging each individual by the totality of their merits and their flaws, individuals. I don't care if you're pink or blue or tall or short or black or transgender, I don't give a damn, right? 
but I don't need to be an ally to group X. I am an ally to every human being because they have individual dignity and individual human agency. That should not be such a difficult idea to support. That's what the West was built on, individual rights. And so that would be a pathogen, equality of outcomes instead of equality of opportunities. Uh, the culture of per, per, uh, perpetual uh, offense is another pathogen, right? Where th there's kind of a trigger, a faux trigger. I call it, by the way, collective Munchausen. Are you familiar with Munchausen? So, yes, I am. So I had written a paper many years ago, a scientific paper in a medical journal, where I was analyzing collective uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Uh, so this so Munchausen, for your viewers who, who might not know this, is where you, you feign, uh, for example, a medical illness to garner empathy and sympathy. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is where you have someone in your care, your child, your pet, your elderly parent, and you harm them so that you can garner the sympathy and empathy by proxy. And so because I was already familiar with the psychiatric disorder from many years ago when I had written that paper, and then I saw what was happening in the West where everybody is screaming bloody victim. I am a victim, therefore I am. So I coined the collective malady, I called it collective Munchausen, where it becomes this grotesque victimology poker. It becomes the oppression Olympics. And I always, by the way, uh, facetiously, but it's, very, it's a very powerful strategy, I always use my own victimology score to always outrank all the ones who try to attack me. So I, I have something that regrettably you don't. Well, you, you're a woman, so you outrank me there because I have testicles. But I am a, a war refugee, an Arabic Jew, you know, a brown person, right? So... I, so as soon as someone attacks me, I actually flip it on them, use their currency, and you watch them wither away. Now, how grotesque is that, right? That I actually have to use this grotesque theater of the absurd to beat you at your game rather than us engaging in a good conversation and may the best person win. No. And so I use all sorts of these types of strategies to fight against the idea of pathogens. I mean, you mentioned university is sort of a breeding ground for all this stuff, but why do you think, why are we, well, not we, not clearly not you and I, uh, we're honey badgers, but why are the rest of the world uh, so willing to receive this nonsense? I, I, look, I think it's, it's, you know, there's a seven deadly sins. I, I've always petitioned for an eighth sin to be added, just like we add amendments to the U.S. Constitution. There should be cowardice as, a, as another deadly sin. Most people are simply, again, privately, they'll come up to you and say, what the hell is going on, professor? This is nuts. But then you say, so speak up. Just say it's nuts, right? I mean, J.K. Rowling, I mean, you, you know this better than I do because you're from Britain. So you, I mean, I mean, it's insane that for mm -hmm. her to say that, what do you mean men can menstruate? Uh, that becomes a manifestation of her being truly indistinguishable from Hitler. Like, if I see a picture of Hitler or her, I can't tell who's more evil. So when your moral compass is that confused, now again, you ask me the question, well, why do people do it? Because I think they're just too afraid. I mean, I, you know, having the mob come after you is really not a pleasant thing, right? And therefore, most people just don't have the courage for the same reason that when you hear a person being mugged in an alley, some people will he 
heed the call and intervene, but most people will pretend that they didn't hear the cries of, of help and walk on without intervening, right? So it's the same principle. It starts off by, so first when postmodernism came out, uh, I don't, uh, do you know a bit the history of postmodernism? No. no. So, <laughs> so postmodernism, basically the, 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 the kings of bullshitters uh, were three French guys. There, there are others, but Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and Jacques Lacan, three complete charlatans who, now this, I, I don't have proof of this, but I've psychoanalyzed them from distance by history. And I think what they, in physics, you get respect because you're speaking a language that is impenetrable to most people, right? I mean, in, in mathematics, so I have a background in mathematics, you can't follow the first line of a math paper because you don't even understand what the symbols are. So that impenetrable quality lends mathematics an, an, an aura, right? A, an, an air of prestige, right? So all these bullshitters in the universities were jealous. Why are those assholes in physics and in mathematics getting all of the prestige? Let's also build an impenetrable language, but using language, using verbal fluidity or fluency, but that is truly impenetrable, that is complete jargon bullshit. But hopefully by fooling people, by confusing them, then we can have the same aura of respectability. As they, by, by the way, Michel Foucault in a chat with a famous uh, American philosopher, John Searle, uh, John Searle was telling him, well, Michel, how come when I speak to you in person, you seem to be a lot more easy to understand that when I read your papers and books, he said, oh, well, because in France, if you don't confuse them a lot, then people won't take you. I mean, so he admitted to yeah. exactly what I'm saying, right? You have to have this full, full profundity to appear as though you're saying something deep because most people, if they don't understand you, they won't say it's because the guy is a bullshitter who's speaking. They'll say it's because they are too dumb. Right? The person who's speaking must be saying something so profound that it is me, the moron, who's not understanding his, his brilliance. Right, And so the, the mechanism begins and off we go to the races and bit by bit we sink into greater lunacy. So I'll, I'll give you one other quick example. Uh, why did the social sciences abdicate biology? So if, if you look at most of the social sciences, you know, cultural anthropology, even economics, much of the, I'm housed in a business school, you, you never hear the word biology mentioned, but I mean, how is it that you can study managers and employees and consumers without recognizing that these entities are biological beings? My hormones affect how I make decisions as a consumer, as an employee, as a manager, as a boss. And so it started, and here I'm answering in a very long-winded way your original question. So forgive me if it's long-winded. Uh, about a hundred years ago, a bunch of anthropologists recognized that Darwinian theory, evolutionary theory, was being usurped by a whole bunch of really nasty folks. So think about the British class elitist, right, who said, hey, it's a natural struggle between the classes. We are the upper class. So if the lower class doesn't get food or doesn't get education or healthcare, who cares? That's a Darwinian thing. Of course, it has nothing to do with Darwin, right? That became known as social Darwinism. It has nothing to do with evolutionary theory. Of course, the Nazis did the same thing. Hey, it's a natural struggle between groups, between races. We are the Aryans, screw the Jews. If we kill them, hey, that's just Darwinian. 
eugenicists did the same thing. Eugenicists are the ones who try to control, sterilize people who they consider undesirable. Well, we don't want too many Sicilians from Europe coming into our country because they they seem like darker Europeans. So maybe we'll sterilize them, or we, you know, we don't want homosexuals. Maybe we should sterilize them, right? So all of these horrible folks took advantage of Darwinian theory and tried to couch their crazy ideas using, quote, science. And so cultural anthropologists came up with a terrible idea of, well, what if we now built all of the social sciences without any reference to biology, because then we will protect against these possibilities? Well, of course, it comes from a noble place, but I always explain, never murder truth in the pursuit of a noble goal, right? I could be a very committed transgender activist, but I don't, and, and I am, I support transgender activism, but I don't have to murder truth in the pursuit of that laudable goal. And so for all sorts of these complicated reasons, we slowly march to madness, and today we wake up where we no longer know what to say because don't believe your lying eyes. Yeah, I mean, we really are in a, you can get in trouble for saying the most benign, factual statement. Uh, I saw today that one of our schools, one of our state schools has renamed one of its houses because it was named Rowling and they've got rid of it. But was it named after her or, or yeah, just was, it was oh. named after her because okay. I don't know, she's like this wonderful author. So the, <laughs> so the witch is being burned from the history records. The witch is most definitely being burned from the history records. Now, I haven't followed closely how she, I mean, I know that she's, she's, she's sticking to her positions. Do you feel that she will capitulate or is yours, because I don't know much about her, or, or is, she a, is she a honey badger? Yeah, I think she's, I don't know if she's a honey badger. She's been very much rooted to the left and, and much of the, the left thinking, uh, which I think is why the attack on her is so vitriolic, because they're sort of, they thought she was one of theirs. They're, she's violating the, the group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't think she'll capitulate. I think she's now in a place where she's already half burned. So there's no point capitulating now. You're ruined either way, aren't you? Right. Well, have you seen, I, you, I'm not sure if you follow anything in North America, but uh, do you know who Drew Brees is? No. Drew Brees, B-R-E-E-S. He is the all-time leading, uh, do you know what a quarterback is in football? Yes. All right. Okay. So he is the all-time leading quarterback of the NFL. So that's, that's saying a lot. He's a phenomenal player, one of my favorite players. And ostensibly, from what everybody says, you know, a family man, a lovely guy, a generous man, gives tons, you know, $5 million for, I think, some COVID thing. Just, just a fantastic guy. I mean, this is the type of guy that, you know, you want your, your children to, to use as a role model. Well, he came out a few, I don't know, a week or two ago with, uh, he was on a podcast and he said something that was truly unconscionable. You ready? Are you, are you seated? I'm ready. This is, this is, I mean, this is level of Hitler and Himmler. He actually took great patriotic pride in his country. Oh my God, the horror. So he actually said, you know, no, I don't respect people who don't, uh, who desecrate the American flag. No, I will never respect someone. I mean, if there's a national anthem, you know, you should respect it. Hey, you, you, have, you have plenty of opportunities to engage in political activism, but I don't, from my perspective, you should never be desecrating the flag. So because he exhibited an incredibly tepid, like, re, you know, truly mm -hmm. a, a gentle, tepid support 
of or exhibiting patriotism, he was massacred. So now imagine this guy. Now here's a football player whose job it is to try to evade 350 pound guys running full force at you to decapitate you. So you would think he's a tough guy. You would think he's got testicular fortitude. Oh no, oh no. No honey badger for Drew Brees. He comes out and weeps and I'm sorry and I've learned. Now when the one apology is not enough, he comes out with a second apology. When the second apology is not enough, his wife comes in to apologize. This is how we end up, you ask, well, how do we end up like this? Because you take all of the cocktail of forces that protect reason, that protect common sense, and you slowly eradicate them such that someone like Drew Brees feels that he has to apologize. Well, this guy who escaped Lebanon because he was gonna be executed is not gonna apologize for saying the West is great. No, well, good for you. Um... Do you think any of this is rooted in sort of not necessarily the breakdown of the family, but sort of parental abdication? I've, I've got a lot of friends who don't really use the word no. In our school systems, we don't really use the word no. Um, we talk about mental health and anxiety to six-year-olds. Uh, do you think that has any part to play in where we are? I, certainly. Look, uh, the, the culture of narcissism and entitlement is, is breathtaking. Now, I, I've seen it as a professor who has taught, so I joined my university in Canada in 1994, and I've also been a visiting professor at three of the top universities in the US, if not the world. Uh, and I, so I've had a very, very large sample and longitudinally 26 years to see multiple generations of students, right? Now, historically, luckily for me, Canada is a bit better than the US, if not a lot better from the sense of student entitlement. Because in Canada, we don't, the students don't pay nearly as, as much money to go to school because right. it's much more of a social system. So they don't have that chip on the shoulder of, I dictate what my grade is, professor, because I'm paying $80,000. So historically, let me start off by saying that Canada is a lot better than the US. But even in the context of Canada, holding the fact that Canada is not the same as the US, I've noticed a, a very clear change in how students interact with authority. Now, it doesn't work with me just because of who I am. But, you know, but I'll tell you honestly, when I post my grades, it's almost as scary as when I was in the Lebanese Civil War. I, of course, I'm being hyperbolic, mm -hmm. but because I'm worried, okay, who's gonna come at me from where? Now, I, I usually tell my students, don't ever come to negotiate your grades with me. And I give them the following analogy. When I go see my physician and he gives me my cholesterol score, I don't negotiate for a better cholesterol score. My cholesterol score is my cholesterol score. If I want to improve my cholesterol score, I'll eat better. I'll train more. I'll, I'll walk more. So by the same token, unless I made a mistake with your grade, we don't negotiate. But you already see that today's student is different than the student 15, 20 years ago because they're empowered, because we're all special because meritocracy is evil white supremacy. So all of these idea pathogens eventually seep to the minds of these gullible students, and it becomes very difficult to be, to be a professor. Now, the reality is, in my case, 99% of the students that I've ever interacted with have been nothing but lovely. But that doesn't negate how serious the problem is, because it doesn't take many people 
to hold the rest of us hostage, right? So, so for example, when people write to me and say, well, professor, I mean, is it really that bad? You know, how many, what's the percentage of crazy folks on campus? I say, well, how many people brought down the Twin Towers in 9-11? Uh, was it 19,000 people? Was it 19 million people? No, it was 19 committed people who changed the, the, the landscape of New York forevermore. So you don't need, you know, 19,000 students who are rabid activists to chill everybody, yeah, right? To create a chilled environment where everybody's afraid. So yes, the numbers remain small, but they are so, you know, active, so vociferous that it keeps the rest of us in check. Mm. I mean, I'm a I'm a gold star atheist, so I've never I've never had religion or God in my life. I'm an atheist from birth, but I do wonder whether the vacuum created by a lack of cohesion, maybe that religion creates, is is also adding to this. And I hate to say it because clearly I am a, a raging atheist. Um, right. Is there any merit to that? Like from your yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, what I will agree with you is that all the woke stuff is certainly a form of secular religion. It, it has all the accoutrement of a religion. There are revealed truths that are inviolable, right? Uh, you, and hence, you cannot discuss it, right? I, I can't go to my rabbi and say, let's discuss the bullshit in Deuteronomy, right? That's true yeah. because it's true, because look at it, it's in my book, therefore it's true. Well, uh, you know, the, the woke, uh, you know, sacraments are the, the same thing, right? So in that sense, I see an analogy between the woke religion and, and other traditional religions. Now, I'm not sure, though, that the lack of religiosity causes one to be more likely to be parasitized by these idea pathogens, because just like you are a hardened atheist, you're looking at the king of atheists. Now, I happen to be a Lebanese Jew, and I'm, I'm very Jewish in, in many of the other facets, right? I belong to a group of people, so in that sense, I have a shared history, but I'm a complete atheist, and yet I wasn't parasitized. I didn't need to look for Walker, because I always tell people, and actually that's one of the things that I mentioned in the book as a prescription, belong to the tribe of truth, don't succumb to tribalism, right? So before I'm Jewish, before I'm Lebanese, before I'm anything, I'm God-sad, defender of the truth. That's where I define my personhood, right? So when, when I see people writing, uh, I'm so proud to be the first person of color neurosurgery, I can't even understand how you think that way, right? I never thought I am the first Lebanese Jew evolutionary psychologist who studies evolution and consumer behavior. My brain is not wired that way. So if you could find a way to reject tribalism, including religious tribalism, there is another home for you. It's called the tribe of truth. Now, someone might come along and say, but you're being presumptuous. What constitutes truth? Well, truth is always provisional in science. What was true yesterday might not be true today, but at least we do our best to use evidence-based thinking, reason, to get at the truth, right? So there were things that were absolutely considered to be true before Galileo and so on, which, and then we put him under house arrest because he said it's the earth that revolves around the sun. Well, that, used, that wasn't the accepted dogma before, but now we know that it's true. So I'm not suggesting that there's only one truth that science has and you can never question it. On the contrary, science has epistemic humility. What I consider to be true to today as a scientist, if tomorrow you come along and show me that I was wrong, 
Then I bow my head down, go back to the drawing board and look for a new truth. So belong to the tribe of truth, reject tribalism and you'll be happy in life. Wow, that sounds, that sounds like a good prescription. Um, with the, the, the way that it's going right now, I, have there been moments in, in the last decade where you've seen it coming, where you know what's coming? Oh, you, I mean, I hate to sound prophetic, but I see it coming. It's kind of like if you see the, you smell the skunk before you actually see, see him. Now, I don't know, it's kind of the gift of Cassandra, right? The one who always uh, has the prophetic visions and the predictions. Now, it's not, the reason I am able to see it is really because I just tie the dots together. And so, for example, I, I don't know how much you know of my work, but in, or at least my public engagement, I often use satire and sarcasm to make a point, right? And I always joke, but it's the truth, that my satire is astoundingly prophetic. Now, how do I get that skill? Because I always take a phenomenon of lunacy and I extend it to the boundary condition. I extend the, the phenomenon as far as it can go and then I satirize it there. And guess what? Reality then catches up to my <laughs> satire. So I'll give you one, because you might say, okay, that sounds good, but give me a concrete example. So when I started seeing all the social justice bullshit in all the universities, uh, I said, having studied mathematics, I said that I am introducing a new field of study because I am a hardened, you know, progressive woke person, social justice mathematics. And so I satirizes by saying things like, so I took actual terms from mathematics, irrational numbers. I said, well, we have to get rid of these types of appellations because that marginalizes the mentally ill. So I literally went through <laughs> all the canons of mathematics mm. and I said, well, guess what? There is now social justice mathematics. No, there's not. <laughs> there is. As oh my goodness. Fact, mathematics is racist. It's white supremacy. So, so, so to answer again your question, am I able to predict it? 100%. And again, what's the cognitive structure that allows me to predict it? It's exactly what I said. I take a phenomenon and I extrapolate. It's, if you like, imagine riding the slippery slope. Where will it get us? So we're at point A. How far can I take the stupidity to get us to the depth of point B? I satirize it. Within a year or two or three, we're there, and I'm the guy standing telling you, I told you so. It's so insane. I've been watching some of the, I, I know you're familiar with Andrew Doyle, um, yeah. but some of his stuff, I just think, I don't know what you can satirize anymore, because it just kind of feels like we're in such a ridiculous non-reality, and it's not tangible. Um, so I put a petition up on change.org to change a program called Loose Women to loose cervix havers because I've said that it's um, not inclusive and that we should call, there's a man that's got a show called um, Breaking Dad. And I said, I think it should be Breaking Ejaculator because then that includes everybody who ejaculates. It's got, it's got 300 signatures on change.org. Well, I think it's going to get a lot more. Don't worry. Uh, Quite I, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I put up a clip on, uh, by the way, I, I know Andrew, he's been on my show uh, mm. a while ago. So yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, 
I put up a clip where I uh, apologize to the world. And by the way, here's another one. Uh, uh, Self-flagellation as a progressive virtue, right, is, 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 is a big idea pathogen, right? You're, the, the only path to you being progressive is to self-flagellate and self-loathing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I got on, I opened my camera and I apologized to the world for my transphobic marriage because, it, because I didn't realize that when I was looking for a mate, that looking for a, a mate, who, a woman who had a vagina was actually transphobic. Whereas in reality, there are some women who have vaginas, some women have nine inch penises. I could have been totally happy with a woman who had a nine inch penis, but I sort of singularly focused on women that had you know, one type of genitalia, and I realize now that it is grossly transphobic, and I apologize to the world. That's the lunacy that we have. Now, there is a thing called Poe's Law, as you know, the, the, the inability to tell on the internet if something is satirical or not. Well, my satire has actually defeated endless mainstream media. So I'll give you one example. I posted once a, a quote where I said, uh, uh, national borders are Nazism and, you know, the whole satirical thing about borders and it's only Nazis would have national borders. And it made it into a major outlet. I think, I can't remember if it was PJ Media. Uh, the top 20th, the top 20 dumbest things that, have, that were said in the year, whatever, 2019. And I was like at number six or something, right next to uh, Ocasio-Cortex and maybe Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winner, who's a completely naturally lobotomized moron. So, and then I wrote to the guy, I said, uh, oops, I guess you didn't pick up the satire. So quickly they go to get rid of it, but they don't even have the honesty to say, you know, edit, like to put an editorial comment of the correction because they were so embarrassed. So I actually am incredibly gleeful when I'm able to fool all the, the media because mm-hmm. they actually, and oftentimes it's conservative media because they don't know who I am. So they think I'm the perfect manifestation of the ultra progressive leftist professor. And so then they'll use my satire as an example of how moronic the professors are when I'm satirizing those moronic professors. Although ironically, you're not too far away from some of those moronic professors when you say insane things. Um, It's just, it's quite, it's quite a beautiful thing. Um, When some people, so you mentioned some of the things that that people, the the pathogens, and some people will hold two of those ideas that don't go together at all, and they can't see it. Uh, Where does that sort of, I mean, where does that, maybe that's not the right question, but that's another level of cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and it goes back to your question about the, the, the analogy between you know, traditional religions and secular religions, right? Uh, if you try to have a logical conversation with a religious believer, no amount of evidence is going to sway them away from their positions, right? I mean, so, I mean, think of it this way. You could take uh, a belief in religion X, and if you're not from religion X, and I shared that belief with you, you go, 
what kind of moron would ever believe something so stupid? But then you turn around and then I say, but you believe in your religion, this other belief that is equally idiotic. No, 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 but that's different. That's my religion. That's true because look at my book. So you, the cognitive dissonance that you're speaking of, it's exactly the same manifestation of the breakdown of cognitive consistency, right? I mean, damn be logic and facts and reason if I have to protect the edifice of bullshit that I've built, right? I mean, I'll give you one concrete example of what you just said. Uh, so, I am for open borders, I am for defunding the police, and I am for repealing the Second Amendment. So, you can't have people protect themselves, you can't outsource the protection to a third party called the police, and oh, by the way, anybody feel free to come in. It doesn't take a sophisticated psychologist to see that if these three objectives materialize, it's not going to result in an increase in the safety. But again, damn be with all this logic schmogic. You know, I am a progressive person. I don't support guns and so on. So, so cognitive consistency is really not part of the game when it comes to supporting progressive wokeness. Mm. I mean, I'd, I've covered recently um, surrogacy, transgenderism, uh, and I just find there's in society we're beginning to have a real disconnect you know like mothers aren't called mothers anymore they might be carriers if you're a surrogate you you're not even allowed to call yourself pregnant you are carrying someone else's baby uh, we're sort of we lose the idea that babies belong with mothers and it just it it feels like there's there's bigger forces I don't think there are because I'm not conspiratorial but it, it feels like we're moving away from the material reality of humans. And I don't yes. know, where will that go? Where, where will we end up? Well, exactly where we're, where we're going now, right? It's a, it's a constant assault on common sense. So in my book, I talk about what do all of these different pathogens have in common? And in a sense, it's gonna address what you just uh, said. And I argue that they have a shared commitment to break free from the shackles of reality, okay? So for example, postmodernism, as I mentioned earlier, is the granddaddy of idea pathogens because it breaks me free from something called truth. There is no truth, there's only my truth. But now let's look at some of the other idea pathogens. Uh, if, for example, I believe in social constructivism, social constructivism is the idea that everything that we are is due to social construction, right? We are born of empty minds without any innate potentiality, without any innate blueprints that might differentiate my brain and yours by virtue of my being male and you being female. We're all born tabula rasa, right? Now, how, how is it that that particular idea pathogen also adheres to the desire to break free from reality? Well, because it's a very hopeful message. It basically says that no one starts off with an advantage in anything, right? Michael Jordan did not start off with a likely unique set of you know, genetic eventual trajectories that would make him be more likely to be a better basketball player than me. It's only because mom hugged him too much or didn't hug him enough or gave him milk or didn't give a milk, that he ended up being who he is. Had we changed the environment, I could have been the next Michael Jordan. Well, that's a very hopeful message, right? Because it basically says, 
don't worry, kid, you can be whatever you want. Don't be restricted by what your genitalia says. You could be male or, you see my point? So each of these uh, ideas, if you'd like, free us from reality in one way or another. And in a perverse sense, that's very liberating, right? Transracialism, never mind transgenderism. Transracialism says that I am not bound by the so-called race that I'm born into. I may be born white or Asian, but if I self-identify as black, I'm black, right? Rachel Dolezal is the most famous example of that. Mm. When, when she was found out, she was the, the head or the spokesman of the NAAPC uh, or NAAPC, I can't remember what the, like a, a black- know, but what, I know what you mean. Right? Uh, when she was found out that she, she's always presented herself as black, and then it turns out that she's as white as, as, as pure snow, then she said, but that doesn't prove anything. I self-identify as black. So when someone can actually take these types of, you know, positions seriously, then that basically says that we have a complete breakdown in reason. By the way, uh, you know, you're, you're involved in the transgender debates. You may or may not know that in two, 2017, I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate. Are, are you, have you seen the, the I am familiar with that. I have watched you. you. Okay, right. So for those of you who didn't see it, I mean, it seems to me extraordinary, even today, three years later, that we needed to get a fancy schmancy evolutionary behavioral scientist to come up in front of the Canadian Senate to say, oh, no, no, really, please trust me. There is such a thing as male and female, which, by the way, maybe today, if I said that, it would send me to Gulag 13. Maybe I would be the next J.K. Rowling. So the, the fact that we actually have to have these conversations demonstrates the extent to which we have sunk into the abyss of infinite lunacy. And again, unless people are willing to speak up, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. And by the way, there is a real, this is not just kind of an esoteric academic argument. Our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, imposes laws on us that are singularly rooted in the fact that he is one grand walking idea pathogen, right? I mean, he is a product of the schooling of all those idea pathogens. So it's not just an esoteric academic argument that ivory tower dwellers are having a discussion. It affects real people in the real world, right? Because these idea pathogens have now seeped their way into every nook and cranny of society, in politics and in Hollywood and in the media and in journalism and in academia. So no one is safe from these idea pathogens. And by the way, just now, since this whole thing started happened with the, 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 the horrifying death of George Floyd and, you know, all the lunacy has been ramped up, the number of emails that I receive from people who turn to me really as kind of a global therapist because they can't make sense of what they just experienced at the dinner table. At, I, have, I have a black friend, I actually tweeted about this uh, yesterday, who wrote to me privately, of course, I won't mention who he or she is, who said to me, you know, I can't really make sense anymore because I'm black and because I'm not into all of the, you know, the cause the way they are, I'm being disowned by all my black family. And he just could, he or she couldn't understand what was happening. So there are real consequences to you know, waving the, f the white flag and saying, we surrender reason. So mm. please speak up and battle this lunacy.
So you're not going out feet washing then in the streets? <laughs> I, I, I am heading out immediately after this. First, I'm going to do the kneeling. I, 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 I'm going to self-flagellate, then I'm going to kneel, and then I'm looking for those feet. I'm going to kiss them and wash them because I'm a disgusting man. Well, I had Zubi on. I talked to Zubi a, a few days ago. And uh, are you familiar with Zubi? I am. He, he, he invited me on his show, I think, last year. Okay. So he didn't put a black square up for Black Lives Matter. Right. And a white woman said, I'm unfollowing you because you don't care about black lives. <laughs> unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. I mean, this is not quite the same example, but to show you the sense of full outrage that people have. Uh, last weekend, it was the, uh, the, the, my wife's birthday. And so I had, I had put out a tweet on Friday saying, okay, guys, you're going to have to do without me for the next two days. I'm off social media. I've received clear instructions from my wife, no social media. Uh, and then I wrote something like, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to wish her a happy 22nd birthday. She's not 22. And then in brackets, just because all the imbeciles, morons, and naturally lobotomized fool might not understand that I'm joking, I wrote, uh, I have to write, I have to lower her age in case she is reading this. So it's, it's clear that it's a joke. Mm -hmm. Person writes to me, you're disgusting. You're married to a 22-year-old woman. I'm unfollowing you. Right? So, but first of all, it's already a problem. 22, I, I'm, I think it's adult. So technically speaking, from, from a legal uh, perspective, I mean, it's not a two-year-old, right? Uh, but let's stop and think for a second. I've been with my wife for 20 years. So if she's 22, that means she was two when I married her. So imagine how blind this person must be in their desire to be outraged that something as obvious as that joke, right? Lowering my wife's age to make it mercy is something that causes you to despise me as a disgusting male preying on young women. I mean, it's insane. Plus they followed you. So they must have seen your content and had a little bit of an idea about who you were. Exactly. And by the way, she's not 22, she's 20. No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. How dare you joke in this in 2020? It's absolutely not allowed. Um, I realize I've kept you for nearly oh, no. an hour. Um, but thank you so much. I do feel like a fellow honey badger. Um, and I, I have admired you since I, you came into my attention uh, back when uh, Bill C-16 came around. And I just think the world needs you. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Real fun. Well, I absolutely loved that. I hope that was good for you too. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe.